Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Hope everyone is staying occupied and entertained while you are doing the whole social distancing slash self-isolation slash self-quarantine thing. I kind of do all three of those things already, so my life hasn't changed too much. I'm going to try to get out a couple more bonus episodes while this is all going on, just to give you guys a little bit more entertainment. I know I really appreciate my podcasts I listen to that have been just like whipping out the bonus episodes. It's making this all a little bit easier to deal with. As usual, this episode is brought to you by my patrons. And if you would like to become a patron, simply click the link in the show notes. You're going to get some bonus episodes and I'm going to send you some shit in the mail like stickers and other things like that because I'm 12 years old. But you're going to like it, I promise. So with all that out of the way, let's just get into the episode. For many longtime Alaskans of a certain age, when they hear the name Bonnie, they immediately think of 18-year-old Bonnie Craig, who was murdered on September 28, 1994. The reason her name is so memorable to us is due almost entirely to the efforts of her mother, Karen Foster, who did everything she could to keep Bonnie's story fresh in the public mind and to make sure that her daughter's murder would not go unsolved. One of the things that she did to reach those goals was to put Bonnie's face all over the place on billboards, park benches, and all throughout the city next to the three-word question, who killed Bonnie? These images were nothing if not memorable. I have clear memories of seeing the image as a child and not quite grasping what it meant. The same goes for many other Alaskans, and in that way, the campaign was very successful in keeping Bonnie's story in the public consciousness. I cannot express how important Karen was in driving her daughter's case forward, and it's really a mother's love that would eventually lead to answers. The main source for this episode is the book Justice for Bonnie, which was co-written by Karen Foster, along with I.J. Schechter. And before we get into the story, I just want to tell you a little bit about Bonnie Craig and the special person that she was. She was born March 30th, 1976 in Calgary to her parents, Karen and Gordon, who were high school sweethearts. She already had a brother named Jason, who was a few years older. Karen and Gordon divorced a few years after Bonnie was born and Gordon would have little involvement in his children's lives from then on out. Shortly after the divorce, Karen met an engineer named Gary Campbell, and the two were married a few years later. Over the next two years, the couple had a son named Adam, followed by a daughter named Samantha. And all throughout their childhood, Bonnie was very nurturing to her younger half-siblings, and she had a loving relationship with her older brother, Jason. There was never any sibling rivalry, and by the time she was in her teens, she would often volunteer to babysit Adam and Samantha when her parents went out of town. Gary's job had the family moving all around to various places, and eventually at the end of the 80s, they ended up in Anchorage, Alaska. But after just a few years in town, the two of them would end up getting divorced, but Gary would continue to be very involved in the lives of his children and would continue to be a father figure to Bonnie and Jason as well. Bonnie was known as being a very sweet and kind person. 
I will post a picture of her and you can just see the goodness radiating out of her. She was known by her friends and family for having a very bouncy, happy nature, and they often called her Tigger because of it. While attending service high school in the early 90s, she decided she wanted to wrestle competitively and lobbied to get on the boys' wrestling team. Eventually, she was allowed to join as the first girl ever to be on the team. She was a great wrestler, too, and would win against many boys during her time on the team. And when her good friend Katie died in a car accident during high school, she started up the group Students Against Drunk Driving. She was a very wholesome person and had no interest in drugs or alcohol. She had a very caring and compassionate nature and truly wanted to help people. She had even talked about possibly becoming a social worker after college. She also joined a group at service called Natural Helpers, which provided peer counseling. During her latter years of high school, she met her teenage sweetheart, Cameron Miyazaki. The two stayed together after graduation, despite the fact that he went off to school at Berkeley while she stayed in Alaska. It was the early days of the internet, and the two kept in regular contact through email. Her friends all recalled how smitten she was with Cameron, and he felt the same in return. She had actually wanted to follow him to Berkeley, but her mother urged her to stay in Anchorage, ironically because she thought Berkeley would be an unsafe place for her daughter. At the time of her death in 1994, Bonnie was a freshman at UAA taking general classes and psychology classes, a subject she had a particular interest in. She was also working part-time at Sam's Club. She was very serious about school, and she hoped to eventually be able to move to California to be with Cameron. She was very bubbly and made friends quickly, and just a few weeks into college, she already had a bunch of new friends, acquaintances, and study partners. She was living with Gary Campbell at the time and her two younger half-siblings, with whom she continued to have a close relationship with. Everyone that met her saw how diligent and reliable she was with her schoolwork and part-time job. She was friendly and social, but didn't party like most college freshmen. She was too busy being focused on getting good grades and her future dreams. She had a very set weekly schedule she stuck to. She was taking classes two days a week, and those days were packed full. She often left her house around 5 a.m. to walk to the bus stop, which was about two miles away. She would spend the whole day on campus and often meet with study partners and groups to work on homework after classes and would often not return until late at night. Our story starts in September 1994. Bonnie's mother Karen was in Florida on a trip with her boyfriend Jim to see his brother Ken get married. Late one night, Ken showed up where they were staying with haunted eyes and a phone number for a state trooper. He said he had been contacted and was told to give her the number and have her call the trooper. When she got a hold of the trooper up in Alaska, she was informed that her daughter Bonnie had been in a hiking accident and had not survived. She had been found at McHugh Creek, a popular hiking destination several miles outside of Anchorage 
on the Seward Highway. It appeared that she had fallen off of a 30-foot cliff and had been found floating in the creek below. Karen was, of course, shocked by the news, but she was also very confused by the story. Going hiking alone on a school day was not something that Bonnie would do. And furthermore, she didn't even have a car to get out to the location where she had been found. Later, Karen would learn that none of Bonnie's belongings, such as her school backpack, were found at the scene of her death, but she had most certainly left her house with it that morning. The whole thing made no sense to Karen, and she spent the long flight back to Anchorage that night in a state of turmoil and numbness. Back in Anchorage, Gary had opened his door late that night to two police officers informing him of Bonnie's death. He had fallen to his knees in grief. Despite being her stepfather, he had truly loved Bonnie as his own. When Karen and Jim got back to Anchorage, they were taken to the morgue to see Bonnie. Karen had actually spent a few years as a volunteer undercover reserve officer with the APD and had experienced many dramatic and scary situations, but nothing could have prepared her for having to see her 18-year-old daughter lying in a morgue. When she saw her daughter's face revealed from under a sheet, the horror of the situation truly sunk in. But still, she refused to believe that Bonnie had died while hiking. The law enforcement involved had recovered her body and immediately classified it as an accident. But from the moment she learned of where Bonnie was found, Karen was 100% convinced her daughter had been taken out to McHugh Creek against her will and murdered. She had previously been a reporter and she would use her connections to make her beliefs widely known to the media and public. She found it much easier to focus on the mystery of her daughter's death than to try to fully accept it right away. When media latched onto the story, Karen said yes to every interview request, and the story became headline news throughout the state. Later, when Karen and the rest of her family were able to view Bonnie at the funeral home, Karen got a closer look at her daughter's body and noticed that she had bruises all over her arms and her knuckles were battered and broken. To her, it looked like obvious defensive wounds, as though Bonnie had been in a violent altercation. If she had truly fallen off of a cliff, she wouldn't have had bruises and injuries in so many different locations on her body, and Karen was incensed that law enforcement had not even questioned the injuries they saw on her. She had connections to law enforcement, but no one was listening, and no one was questioning the party line of her death being accidental. Karen decided to have Bonnie interred in an above-ground vault rather than bury her to leave the possibility open for evidence to be recovered from her body if she could just get somebody to investigate. Not long after she saw the bruises on her daughter's arms, Karen spoke with Sergeant Mars of the APD. He told her to please keep the information about the bruises away from the media, because if they did decide to investigate it as a murder, they didn't want that info out there. He also requested her family submit fingerprints and DNA for elimination purposes. Surprising and off-putting as the request was, it seemed to be a sign that perhaps law enforcement would take Karen's beliefs seriously. However, law enforcement continued to be evasive whenever Karen tried to get more details about Bonnie's death, such as whether she had been sexually assaulted or not. 
She had been found fully clothed, but Karen had her suspicions that no one would confirm or deny. They would also not let her see the autopsy report. A few days later at Bonnie's funeral, it was standing room only in the church, and many law enforcement officers showed up, including some undercover officers that were stationed throughout the room, looking to see if anyone in the crowd seemed suspicious or out of place. In the weeks following the funeral, Karen sunk into a twilight world of sadness and incomprehension, barely managing to function every day. Time felt eternal as she continuously requested updates from law enforcement and received little or nothing in return. Her two younger kids were 12 and 13 at the time and still needed their mother very much, but she was having a hard time doing much of anything. Several weeks later after Bonnie's death, Karen visited the group Victims for Justice. It was a nonprofit providing support for victims of crime and helping them get financial compensation and many other things. It was run by Janice Leanhart, whose parents had been murdered by Winona Fletcher and her boyfriend Cordell Boyd a decade prior, a case I discussed in a much earlier episode. After their parents' murder, Janice and her sister Sharon had felt like they had received poor treatment from law enforcement and had not received much info related to their parents' deaths and the investigation. This affected them so strongly that they had decided to form Victims for Justice to help other people going through the same thing. And over the many years that it's been going, Victims for Justice has changed laws to give more rights to victims and their families. And Karen found great emotional support with the group and would continue to stay connected with them and attend group sessions with other people in the same circumstances. Janice and her sister took up Karen's mission and began fighting for more rights for her, including trying to get her access to the autopsy report and get more information about her daughter's death. And not long later, Karen met a woman named Sandra Cassidy, who contacted her saying she wanted to help her get the word out about her daughter. Sandra had the idea to create a nonprofit to spread the word about Bonnie and to create flyers and posters to spread throughout town to keep her story out there and to start a reward fund to motivate people to bring any information forward that they might have. This is when Bonnie's picture began to appear on park benches and buses and billboards next to the three-word question, who killed Bonnie? And her story got out there in a big way. By then, it had been months since the murder, and Karen was just grateful to see her daughter's case getting public attention again. And donations to the reward fund began to come in, along with various leads and possible information about the crime, which Karen would forward to the police. However, after a burst of new attention and many new leads, nothing seemed to really go anywhere. And as the year 1994 was wrapping up, Karen was just trying to get through the holiday season for the first time without her daughter. A few weeks into the new year, Karen was contacted by Sergeant Mars with the APD, who told her that she had finally been authorized to come down to the medical examiner's office to view the autopsy report. She invited Janice to go with her, 
knowing that this new release of information was likely due to her continuous fighting on Karen's behalf. Karen was finally able to read the autopsy and learn just what her daughter had gone through in her final moments. There was evidence of nearly a dozen separate blunt force injuries to the back of her head, along with the injuries that Karen had previously seen on her hands and arms. She also found out, as she had most feared, that there was tearing in the vaginal walls, and the killer had left his DNA inside of Bonnie. As a mother, Karen was horrified to have her worst fears confirmed, but as a detective, she knew that this could be the lead that took him to the killer. Eight months after Bonnie's death, Karen and Jim took a sailboat trip with his brother Ken and Ken's wife Valerie. It was the first time they had all been together since the sailing trip in Florida when they had learned of Bonnie's death. This time, however, when they reached Whittier, Alaska, after a several-day trip from Seward, the brothers learned that their father had died of a heart attack. Sailing was pretty much losing its appeal entirely. Over the course of 1995, a few seemingly promising leads popped up, guys that had known Bonnie but were easily dismissed when their DNA was not a match. It was, of course, very frustrating, and then the case started to go cold again. Nothing new would come to the surface for a few more years. Three years went by, and then in the spring of 1998, Karen was contacted by Sergeant Mars, who told her there was a DNA match with a man who had been a bus driver on the route Bonnie took to college. However, upon retesting the DNA, they realized the initial positive match had been an error, and the bus driver's DNA did not match the evidence. Karen was beyond frustrated by these leads that seemed to go nowhere. She had spent three years trying to keep Bonnie's face out there with posters and flyers and billboards, and she was just exhausted. As more years continued to pass after Bonnie's death, Karen's sons had both given her grandchildren, which was a huge blessing to her. She got married and then separated from her long-term on-and-off boyfriend, Jim, and when 2001 came around, she was devastated to learn of the death of Janice Leanhart the woman who had been such a rock of support to her. Janice had abruptly died at 62 from a disease. Another death rocked Karen's family in 2005 when she found out that her brother Andrew had been found dead in his apartment after a long battle with depression. Then in 2006, Karen's mother passed away due to a combination of grief and cancer. At the end of that year, her youngest daughter, Samantha, got married. And over the holiday season, Karen decided to go on a trip to China and the Philippines with a friend. While there in early January, she got contacted by an investigator with a cold case unit from the Alaska Bureau of Investigation, saying that there were now new developments in Bonnie's case. They exchanged emails and he informed her that they had a lead on someone that was currently in prison in New Hampshire and that he would give her more information when he could. When he contacted her again, he said that there had been a match between the DNA found on Bonnie's body and the DNA of the prisoner in New Hampshire through the CODIS system. 
Frustratingly, since she was on the other side of the world, Karen had a really hard time getting a hold of the investigator, so they were only able to communicate via email through the next few days. But finally, she learned the name of the match, a man named Kenneth Dion. He would have been in his mid-twenties at the time of Bonnie's murder, and was known to have been in Alaska. He had recently been arrested for a robbery in New Hampshire, and procedurally, his DNA was taken and added to the CODIS database, where it showed a match with the Alaskan cold case. And Alaskan law enforcement was currently in the process of getting him extradited back to Alaska. Karen felt a mild sense of relief, but also some conflicting emotions. She had anxious thoughts that this might turn out to be a false lead like all of the others, or that they wouldn't be able to get a conviction for this guy. And needless to say, it put a damper on the rest of her trip there. She returned to Alaska in January and waited anxiously for news, but the months crawled by until she learned that Kenneth Dion would be indicted on April 27, 2007, for Bonnie's murder before he was even extradited. Karen and her family attended the indictment and learned that Kenneth Dion was being charged with first-degree murder, second-degree murder, and first-degree sexual assault, and that a pretrial conference would be on Halloween of that year. They would later learn that Dion was a lifelong criminal with a massive rap sheet, including multiple felonies, and he'd been in and out of jail and prison for a large part of his life. At the time of Bonnie's murder, he was actually out on parole. And Karen found it to be quite strange that despite his multiple felonies, his DNA had not been in the database when the murder initially happened. She found out that at the time, Alaska was one of the many, many states that didn't actually have to collect DNA from felons. Karen sprang into action using her many sources and connections. She was able to get in touch with Governor Sarah Palin, and within just a few weeks, a bill was passed that stated Alaska had to take DNA on all felony arrests. In the fall of 2007, Karen was invited to speak at the National CODIS Convention, where she would tell Bonnie's story to hundreds of law enforcement officers from around the country. During that time, she was also spending time in Florida, trying to get the same type of DNA bill passed there, and she was working alongside the parents of Jennifer Kess and Tiffany Sessions. They were all part of a group called the Surviving Parents Coalition. Karen was also considering relocating to Florida, and not long after her visit, she was offered a job working with a group that was fighting for more bills that protected children from predators, and her mind was easily made up. And in 2009, she relocated to Boca Raton. Months and then years had passed after Dion's arrest and indictment, and the trial kept getting pushed back further and further. It had actually originally been scheduled for 2008, but would not begin until May 2011, nearly 17 years after Bonnie's murder. Prior to the trial, a plea deal had actually been offered to Dion to plead guilty and receive the sentence of 75 years, but he refused, and he was going to put the family through a trial. When defense opened, their statement laid out their strategy, which was to argue that there was only evidence of sex occurring between Bonnie and Kenneth and evidence of her falling off of a cliff. 
Their plan was to convince the jury that the two had consensual sex and then somehow she had fallen off the cliff on her own in a tragic accident. However, throughout the trial, multiple witnesses would come forward to testify to Bonnie's inherent goodness, her disinterested in, disinterest in drugs and alcohol, and her extreme devotion to her boyfriend. While on the defense side, they tried to place doubt in the mind of the jury using, quote, evidence that was a major stretch, such as her being in a study group with other boys, etc., as though this meant that she was obviously cheating on her boyfriend and insinuating that she somehow was in a relationship with Dion at the time. To put it plainly, it was all just a bunch of fucking bullshit, and I cannot imagine having to sit through that. And the trial was really rough on Bonnie's friends and family from the beginning, as they had to relive the trauma of learning what had happened to their friend, daughter, and sister, as well as hearing her name smeared through the mud, almost as if the defense was lightly insinuating that Bonnie had lived a wild life and thus may have gotten what she deserved. It was also hard for her friends and family members that had to be witnesses and experience the drilling from the cross-examination from a defense attorney who was, we'll say, smug. When questioning Bonnie's younger sister, Samantha, who by now was a 911 dispatcher, the defense tried to bring focus to the somewhat non-traditional living arrangements of Bonnie's blended family as though this was a sign that she may have been tempted to experiment with the wild side. However, the prosecution would counter this by highlighting how serious and focused Bonnie was about her college classes. She'd had a test scheduled on September 28th, the day of her murder, and she had spent quite a long time just a few days prior in a study group for it, which was a good indicator that she wasn't likely to just skip her test and go off for a fling. Many of Bonnie's good friends were put on the stand as witnesses, now all in their mid-30s, including her boyfriend at the time of her murder, Cameron Miyazaki. Though now married and 17 years on, it was clear in his testimony that he had greatly loved Bonnie and that the loss of her still hung heavy in his heart. The defense heartlessly tried to convince Cameron through cross-examination that Bonnie had not been nearly as devoted to him as he thought and that she likely was seeing other boys. They were just doing what they could to smear Bonnie's character, but at the same time causing more pain to someone who had already experienced such a tragedy. The doctor who had performed the autopsy was also called as a witness. He showed pictures and described injuries he found on Bonnie's body, including many injuries to her hands that he said were consistent with defensive wounds. He also described how Bonnie had internal lacerations, which were a sign of either rough sex or sexual assault, but it was impossible to determine if it had been consensual or not. The doctor then described the multiple injuries to Bonnie's skull. He explained how there were 11 separate injuries to the back of her head and that none of them were consistent with the fall. In fact, he directly stated that it was impossible they could have been caused by a fall. He explained that the injuries were all consistent and that each appeared to have occurred with the same amount of force, which meant they likely had all been inflicted by one common weapon. On cross-examination, the defense's only real argument was to question why vast quantities of blood had not been found anywhere in the area. 
In fact, only one tiny drop of Bonnie's blood was found at the top of the cliff. And it had never been determined exactly where the main attack took place. But what the one drop of blood did prove was that Bonnie was injured before she fell off the cliff. A woman named Tammy Aronson was called as a witness, and it was revealed that she had been married to Kenneth Dion in 1994 and had given birth to a baby girl just weeks before Bonnie's murder. She explained how Kenneth would often disappear for days or weeks at a time with no explanation. At the time, Kenneth had a cocaine issue and was often a very aggressive person. He was really interested in martial arts and kept various martial arts weapons in his car. He's just that kind of guy. The defense would only call two witnesses throughout the trial. Neither of them was very helpful. One of them was a medical examiner that testified he believed that Bonnie's injuries were more consistent with a fall than being hit by a weapon. On cross-examination, the prosecution got him to admit that he'd actually previously mentioned a few different weapons that could have caused the injuries, and also that since he had retired in 2001, he had not done any research or reading in regards to the pathology of an accidental fall. Prosecution suggested some articles on the subject that he could read during the next court adjournment. So they took an hour break And when it came back, the prosecution revealed that the doctor had ended up napping for most of the break, even though he would claim that he'd spent the time studying the articles. The doctor was obviously uncomfortable with the questioning and seemed really nervous. And in his closing statement, the prosecution would reveal that the doctor had spent much of his 10 years since retirement being a paid expert in many trials. Also during closing, prosecution discussed how During many interrogations, Kenneth Dion had insisted he had no idea who Bonnie was, even though her picture had been everywhere throughout Anchorage for the two years he lived there after the murder, and that he would later claim that he'd had consensual sex with her. When the defense did their closing arguments, their main strategy was reiterating over and over how no one had seen Kenneth Dion with Bonnie, no one had seen him or his car at McHugh Creek that day, and no one had seen him along the walk to her bus stop. They were desperately trying to instill reasonable doubt in the jury's minds based on what wasn't found. And if you're at that point where that's your defense strategy, you're kind of SOL. Prosecution ended the trial with the last statement, in which they said that the reason there wasn't a lot of blood was likely because the worst of the damage to Bonnie had occurred when she was already in the water, and thus the blood had washed away. And the fact that there was the single drop of blood found at the top of the cliff is an indication that she was already injured before going off the cliff. And with that, the trial was over and it was now in the jury's hands, but not for very long. Early the next morning, the jury announced they had a verdict. And again, the courtroom was packed with people waiting to find out what the resolution was going to be. The jury found Dion guilty of all the charges against him. And they would then wait three months to find out his sentence on Halloween 2011. During the victim impact statements at sentencing, Kenneth Dion finally seemed to lose the cool smugness he had displayed throughout the trial. And he had several profanity-laden outbursts claiming his innocence. 
His defense attorney was allowed to speak and requested that Dion might have the opportunity for parole someday. After all statements were made, the judge sentenced Dion to 99 years for the first-degree murder and 25 years for the sexual assault, but he did leave parole on the table. However, Dion will be in his 80s by the time he gets a chance to see a parole board, if he makes it that long. In 2015, the Alaska Court of Appeals upheld Dion's conviction. He had tried to appeal a sentence for a few different reasons, mostly coming down to the fact that he thought there was insufficient evidence to convict him, but the appeals court was not having it. Bonnie Craig was the most tragic of victims, a complete innocent going about her life and working hard for her dreams when she happened to cross paths with a predator. And her mom is a true badass. And without her, who knows if Bonnie's case would ever have been resolved. Thank you for listening to this episode. We'll see you again soon. Hopefully sooner rather than later. Stay safe. Stay home. Keep away from other people. Hell is other people. And we'll see you soon. Bye.